The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Christ is the living truth, and the Bible is the written truth. They are one. As we are conformed to the one, we shall also be conformed to the other. It does not make any difference which is approached first. If there is true surrender to the Bible, there will ultimately be true surrender to Christ. And if there is true surrender to Christ, there will be ultimately true surrender to the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ is Christian doctrine, and Christian doctrine is the Lord Jesus Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Christian Doctrine. Some Christians care little about sound doctrine. They may say that love is much more important and that we should pursue childlike faith. But we must not confuse childlike faith with childish faith. God wants us to grow towards spiritual maturity and we must pursue an increasing knowledge of the Bible and the doctrine set forth in its pages. Are you growing in the Lord in obedience to sound Christian doctrine? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christian Doctrine. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How tender thou art with us, patient with us in our faults forgiving us when we sin, and calling us to thyself by a thousand graces, great and small, as we walk with thee day by day. Bless the word to our hearts, and use it in this hour, that we may come to a clearer knowledge of thyself, and follow thee more closely in all sincerity. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The text we are treating today is Romans 6.17. Ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. This text is a part of a thanksgiving psalm which welled from the heart of Paul when he knew the transformation which had taken place in the lives of the infant church at Rome. We must remember that the church at Rome had been founded almost immediately after the resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples at Pentecost, they had begun to preach the gospel in the language of all the visitors who were at Jerusalem. And it is specifically stated that this number included visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, that is, Gentiles who had become Jews under the Old Testament conditions. These all heard the gospel, and beyond question, they returned to their homes in Rome and carried their new faith with them. I am convinced that Christians were meeting in the city of Rome, serving the bread and wine of the communion, within a few weeks of the day of Pentecost, long before the conversion of Paul and long before Peter first preached the gospel to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Paul was filled with joy that the news of their faith had spread throughout the empire and that Christians everywhere knew that there were faithful assemblies of believers meeting from house to house in the capital of the world. Their Christian life was a cause for deep gratitude to God. Our text tells us that they had obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which had been delivered to them. Before we proceed to expound this text, we must establish its true meaning. A comparison with other translations will help. The American Standard Version says, Ye became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching whereunto ye were delivered. The Revised Standard Version has it, You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We will take this text from the end back toward its beginning, as we may best understand it in that way. First of all, then, we are told that they were handed over to something. It's not that the gospel was delivered to them, but they were delivered to the gospel. Secondly, we are told that it was a form of doctrine, a form of teaching, a standard of teaching to which they were delivered. And thirdly, we find that they obeyed this form of doctrine, and lastly, that they obeyed it from the heart. It's very important that the word of God should announce that people are handed over to the truth and not that the truth is handed over to people. There's a story which tells of a group of people who entered a museum and began to criticize the paintings which were hanging on its walls. The curator said, It is not the paintings that are on trial here, it is the visitors. There can be no doubt that the opinion of men is not going to change the quality of Rembrandt's paintings. That artist, known as the King of Shadows, has stood the test of time. Likewise, the truth which God has set forth and which is as unchangeable as himself is not a thing that is delivered into the hands of men, but it is a great fact to which men are delivered. The Christian is handed over to truth. In fact, wherever the gospel is preached, the men who hear it are handed over to the truth. If they submit to it and obey it from the heart, they are saved. If they refuse it, they are still in its power and will be judged by it. Truth is in God. And the truth of God is the great judge that will either find us obedient to its form or broken by its weight. Next, it should be noticed that the truth to which men are delivered is described as the form of doctrine. Now, let us define these terms. Doctrine is the term which is used throughout the New Testament as the synonym for teaching. The body of truth that is taught by the Holy Spirit is Christian doctrine, Christian teaching. Our Lord Jesus used this word in a most important meaning when he said in John 7, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. There have been those who do not wish to be obedient to the form of sound doctrine, so they have raised suspicions against the word. Many people have confused doctrine with dogma. 
These are two different words, both in English and in the Greek. In the ancient times, the Greeks did not use the word dogma for edicts of their own government, but for the decrees of the distant and unfriendly Roman Senate. There have been those who do not wish to acknowledge God and who have sneered at Christian teaching deprecatingly as though it were an imperious or arrogant declaration of opinion instead of the counsel of the faithful, loving, and true God. I have in my hands a hymn book which is published by a cult in the United States and which distorts some of our hymns in terrible fashion. For example, we know in our books, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And in this hymn book of the cult which I'm, of which I am speaking, we read the horrible lie as follows, Just as I am, thou wilt receive, though dogmas I may ne'er believe, nor heights of holiness achieve, O God of love, I come. Well, it may be possible for a man to reach God without dogmas, but most certainly he can never reach God without doctrine. For Christianity, in the final analysis, is a body of teaching concerning man's complete ruin in sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ. McLaren, in pointing out that Paul's gospel was a definite body of teaching, says, now the word doctrine, which is employed here, has, in the lapse of years since the authorized version was made, narrowed its significance. At the date of our authorized translation, doctrine was probably equivalent to teaching, of whatever sort it might be. Since then it has become equivalent to a statement of abstract principles, and that is not at all what Paul means. He does not mean to say that his gospel was a form of doctrine in the sense of being a theological system, but he means to say that it was a body of teaching, the nature of the teaching not being at all defined by the word. Therefore, we have to notice that the great blessed peculiarity of the gospel is that it is a teaching, not of abstract dry principles, but of concrete historical facts. From these... Principles in plenty may be gathered, but in its first form, as it comes to man fresh from God, it is not a set of propositions, but a history of deeds that were done on earth. And therefore it is fitted to be the food of every soul and the mold of every character. Jesus Christ did not come and talk to men about God and say to them what his apostles afterwards said, God is love, but he lived and died and that mainly was his teaching about God. He did not come to men and lay down a theory of the atonement or a doctrine of propitiation or theology about sin and its relation to God, but he went to the cross and gave himself for us, and that was his teaching about sacrifice. He did not say to men, there is a future life, and it is of such and such a sort, but he came out of the grave and he said, touch me and handle me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, and therefore he brought life and immortality to light, by no empty words, but by the solid realities of facts. He did not lecture upon ethics, but he lived a perfect human life, out of which all moral principles that will guide human conduct may be gathered. And so, instead of presenting us with a hortus siccus, with a botanic collection of scientifically arranged and dead propositions, he led us into the meadow where the flowers grow, living and fair, his life and death, 
with all that they imply, are the teaching. Let us not forget, on the other hand, that the history of a fact is not the mere statement of the outward thing that has happened. Suppose four people, for instance, standing at the foot of Christ's cross, four other witnesses than the four that we know. There is, for example, a Roman soldier, a Pharisee, and there is one of the weeping crowd of poor women, not disciples, and there is one man who is a disciple. Now the first man, the Roman, tells the fact as he saw it. A Jewish rebel was crucified this morning. The second man tells the fact. A blaspheming apostate suffered what he deserved today. The woman tells the fact. A poor, fair, gentle soul was martyred today. But the fourth one tells the fact. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins. The three tell the same fact. The fourth preaches the gospel. That is to say, Christian teaching is the facts plus their explanation. And it is that which differentiates it from the mere record which is of no avail to anybody. So Paul himself in one of his other letters puts it. This is his gospel. Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is what turns the bald story of the facts into teaching, which is the mold for life. When we look at the word of God from this point of view, we see that we are faced with a great system of historical facts, but that the facts have an absolutely divine meaning, and that meaning has been given to us by God himself. Next, we notice that the obedience which these believers had given to the teaching to which they had been delivered was yielded to a form of doctrine. This is the heart of our text, and the most difficult to set forth. What is this form of doctrine to which they had been handed over for complete obedience from the heart? The Greek word, which is in our text form, is found 16 times in the New Testament. And in our authorized version, it is translated by seven different English words. Print, figure, fashion, manner, form, example, and pattern. The Greek word is tupos, from which we get our English word type. It had many uses in ancient speech. It is found in the classic writings to describe the impression of a seal, or the mark of a branding iron, a footprint on the ground, or the marks left by teeth on a piece of paper. It was used commonly for a cast or replica made in a mold, for a matrix, for the die from which a coin was minted, for a child who was the image of his parents. As a legal term, it has been found in the papyri for the form of legal procedure prescribed for conducting a case before a court. In the New Testament, it is first found in the Gospel of John, where Thomas used it to describe the marks on the hands of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. For we read in John 20, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now from such a usage, the word passed naturally to that of form, mold, or standard, which is the idea found in our text. The scriptural teaching is not a vague, formless impression of truth, but it is a definite body of teaching, a hard mold of factual truth, into which the Christian is to be melted and poured, until he takes on in his own life the shape of that truth.
which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ living in us and controlling us. We're often criticized for wishing to be technical about Christian ideas, but God himself is very technical about these things. Jesus Christ did not say, I am one of many ways, but he did say, I am the way. Jesus Christ did not say, I am one of several forms of truth, but he did say, I am the truth. Jesus Christ did not say, I am one of many manifestations of life, but he did say, I am the life. And having presented himself in this exclusive finality of his deity, he set himself forth as the only means of approaching God, saying, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is the mold of doctrine of which the apostle writes in our text. The believers in Rome had obeyed from the heart these foundation truths of Scripture. They knew that truth was fundamental, and they were going to be shaped with these truths. It must be the same in our day. There are those who fight against conformity to doctrine, but the Bible teaches its necessity. They ask us why it's so important to believe in the virgin birth of Christ, for example. They wonder if such a doctrine is important. But if we examine the matter for a moment, we discover that if Jesus Christ were born into this world as an ordinary mortal with a human father of the race of Adam, then he, of necessity, was no more than a man, possessing the full nature of a man, subject to all the errors of the human mind, the lusts of the human heart, and the decay of the human body. He was no more than the illegitimate son of reprehensible Jewish parents, with some fantastic psychosis that he was God. But the moment we take the truth of his origin in its doctrinal mold or form, we see that he was born without a human father, and that he was, therefore, not subject to the passions which reign in our bodies and souls. It is this generic difference which makes him eligible to be the Savior and which makes his death of value for the atonement for our sins. All the doctrines of the Christian faith are closely related because they are a part of this form, this divine mold. Therefore, if any single doctrine of the Christian faith be destroyed, the whole edifice falls apart. If, for example, one denies the existence of a material heaven, then one denies that there is in existence the material body of the Lord Jesus Christ. If one denies the existence of the material body of our Lord, there is of necessity the denial of his ascension into heaven. And there is the denial of his physical resurrection. Then, if there is the denial of his resurrection, there is the denial of the true nature and value of his death upon the cross in my place and in yours. Thus, the denial of the existence of heaven is ultimately the denial of all Christianity. I believe that it can be demonstrated in the same way that the denial of any one of the great doctrines of Christianity entails with that denial the fall of the whole body of Christian truth. That is why theologians throughout the whole of Christian history have built up that which has come to be known as systematic theology. It should be noted also that our text points forward to the 8th chapter of this epistle, 
where we shall find it set forth that the purpose of salvation is that believers might be conformed to the image of God's Son. If we equate these two verses, we comprehend the great fact of the purpose of Christ for all those who are his in the redemption. This form of doctrine, this mold of truth, is nothing more or less than Christ himself. The written word and the living word are two aspects of the same thing. Christ is the living truth, and the Bible is the written truth. They are one. As we are conformed to the one, we shall also be conformed to the other. It does not make any difference which is approached first. If there is true surrender to the Bible, there will ultimately be true surrender to Christ. And if there is true surrender to Christ, there will be ultimately true surrender to the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ is Christian doctrine, and Christian doctrine is the Lord Jesus Christ. I readily accept the implications that much that passes for Christian doctrine is not truly so, since its acceptance does not conform the holder of such a system to the image of the Son of God. The entire church of whatever branch has accepted great fundamentals as being a part of the form of doctrine. All churches, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and the various Protestant bodies, all accept the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord God, made flesh in the Incarnation. All accept the fact of his death as the atonement for sin. All accept the fact of his literal resurrection and his ascension into heaven. All accept these historical facts. But it is also evident that there is not a conformity to the person of the Lord Jesus on the part of all who claim to have accepted these facts. The explanation must lie in the fact that these truths have been accepted with the head, but there has been no obedience from the heart. It is this failure to obey from the heart the form of doctrine to which we were delivered which divides men. In the measure that there is obedience from the heart to this form of doctrine, there is a binding together of the believers and a spiritual oneness which is upon all who do thus obey that marks them as coins are marked, as having been struck from the same die. What a hollow pretense there is in any ecumenical movement which attempts to unite men who have not obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which we have been delivered. All such efforts are doomed to failure, because there can be no oneness where there is not yieldedness to the truth as it is in Christ. Let us then stop seeking the organic union of church bodies, which can never find a common ground of unity, and seek rather to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ in utter conformity to his eternal truth and in yieldedness to that truth. Then those who are without will comprehend that the seeming divisions are merely different folds in which the one great flock is quartered and that the chief shepherd will one day come to bring his sheep from the many folds and unite them as the one flock in heaven, where we shall be with him forever, fully conformed to his image, and make complete in his likeness, because we have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered, because we have been melted down in his love 
and poured into the mold which will shape us like unto himself. And our dear Heavenly Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this truth to each heart. Oh, that we may comprehend the truth is the great unity which has been delivered over to us and that we are delivered over to it and will be judged by it. Therefore, we pray thee, our God, that we may faithfully know the truth and be willing to stand for it, that thou shalt take it to us and use it to thy glory in building us in Christ. So we pray thy blessing upon each listening one. If there be those who have not been born again, accompany them with restlessness, that they may know no peace, no rest, until they rest in Christ. But upon thy redeemed own, who have truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of all this great truth of the teaching to which we have been handed over. And unto thee be all the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power. Now, until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. The Holy Spirit has set forth the truth of God upon the pages of Scripture. We must commit to learn the teaching that comes from God Himself and diligently obey it from the heart. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Christian Doctrine. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Christian Doctrine, or simply request message number R6-36. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Gospel We Like to Hear. The Bible warns us against following teachers who will tickle our ears with false doctrines that appeal to our fleshly nature. This free booklet clearly sets forth the true biblical gospel and sounds a warning against ear-tickling, people-pleasing distortions of the good news, including the false religions of signs and wonders, salvation without lordship, and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Ask for your free copy of The Gospel We Like to Hear when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.